Adultery in the Bible is held out as arguably the most dangerous of all second table sins. By second table, I mean those commandments having to do with how we relate to other human beings. First table commandments have to do with relating to God. Second table sins have to do, of course, with relating to others. And of those, few have more destructive potential than the sin of adultery. You may as well just swallow a hand grenade because adultery will blow up your life. That's what the Father is saying here. And let's just pause for a moment and remember who is speaking. This this isn't just some guy, some dad. This is Solomon, who was born to David and Bathsheba. Solomon had a front row seat for the fallout and trauma that David brought into his own life by reason of his adultery. Solomon watched his father lose moral authority. He watched the civil war that nearly cost him his life and that nearly cost David his kingdom. Solomon saw his family fall into absolute chaos. He watched one of his brothers murder another of his brothers. Solomon knew, maybe better than anyone, What happens to a family when dad decides to color outside the lines, sexually speaking? Don't do it, son. Learn wisdom now. Internalize that voice and let it guide you past the road that leads to ruin. For none who go down that road come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Adultery, sleeping with another person's wife, is an act of personal, and familial suicide. If internalizing the voice of wisdom helps you avoid that, then you will have been generously and amply rewarded. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. In Proverbs chapter 2, we begin to hear more about these paths that lead to stability, happiness, flourishing and health, as well as the paths that lead to death, disappointment, and destruction. The goal is not for us to be forced one way or the other. The goal for us is to see, recognize, and love the ways that lead to life. The goal is for us to internalize the voice of wisdom so that we can navigate safely through all of the options and all of the hazards we face in this good but fallen world. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to Proverbs chapter 2. As I mentioned in the last episode, the structure of the book of Proverbs is reasonably straightforward. There's a short preamble in chapter 1, verses 1 to 7, followed by 12 poems about wisdom, which run through the end of chapter 9. Following that, we have a variety of secondary sources or collections, some attributed to Solomon and some to others. Here in chapter 2, we're looking at the third of those 12 introductory poems. This one comes to us in the voice of the Father. Now, of course, poems can be difficult to translate. The basic content is easy enough to deal with, but some of the nuance and emphasis that is communicated through poetic form can be lost in translation, and we experience some of that here. This entire chapter in the original Hebrew is laid out in an alphabetic way. It's it's a form of alphabetic poem. It consists of one very long sentence made up of various stanzas. It is alphabetic in the sense that the first three stanzas, after the opening address, all begin with the letter Aleph, with the answering three stanzas, all beginning with the Hebrew letter Lamed. 
So when you see verses in English starting with if and then, those are translating Hebrew words that start with Aleph. And then when you see verses starting with to, as in to deliver you, and so you, you are seeing the translation of Hebrew words starting with Lamed. The literary structure is intending to underscore the connection between condition and consequence. So the basic idea here is if you internalize the wisdom being offered to you by your parents, it will deliver you from bad decisions, bad associations, and bad outcomes. That's the content or that's the message. The basic idea in terms of the structure is A leads to B as surely as X and Y lead to Z. That's the sort of poetic reinforcement that's being used here. Now, if we were to try that in English, that would simply mean having all the conditional statements start with A and X and Y, and then having all the consequence statements start with B and Z. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of words in English that start with X, so that would be very difficult, but that's the general idea. And of course, that would only work in America where they pronounce Z as Z. It wouldn't work in Britain or Canada where we pronounce Z actually as Z. That's how complicated language is. Poetry has a hard time crossing the land border between Canada and America, let alone the 3,000 years and many thousands of miles and kilometers we're dealing with here. Regardless, the meaning in this poem is pretty accessible. The father is trying to communicate to the son that the decisions made in adolescence with respect to attention and authority accurately predict consequences and outcomes that will be experienced later in life. Understanding that is wisdom. That was true in Solomon's day, and that remains true in our day as well. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. So the first stanza after the address, my son, begins with the word if, as in, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments. That clause begins with Aleph, helping us identify this as the first conditional stanza. So Bruce Walkie says here, this structure, he's referring to the poetic structure, this structure reflects the nature of wisdom, namely the right deed and successful destiny nexus, closed quote. There is a connection between certain actions and certain outcomes. Understanding that is the essence of wisdom, and helping children see that is one of the primary challenges faced by parents. We want our children to understand that if you run away from mommy, you might get hit by a car. If you stick your finger in an electrical socket, you might get a nasty shock. Certain actions are associated with certain outcomes. And so here, the father takes us to the most basic nexus of all, the connection between attending to the instructions and counsel of your parents and seeking out wisdom and understanding on the one side with positive life outcomes on the other side. That's the basic idea here. He's saying, if you listen to the instruction of your parents and if you make a habit of seeking out wise counsel and knowledge, then certain outcomes may be expected. And we begin to get into those outcomes now, beginning in verse 5. If you do what I've commanded you, the Father says, then you will understand the fear of the Lord 
and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Verse 5 is actually very interesting. It seems to indicate that the path of listening to your parents eventually leads to the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. Certainly most reformers made that kind of connection. They understood that we learn to honor the Lord, as it were, by practicing honor for parents. A child who never learns to listen to mom and dad is unlikely to rest easy under the sovereignty of Almighty God. These things are connected. Children need to be taught, and even more so, they need to experience the connection between trusting and obeying mom and dad with positive life outcomes. This will pave the way for their faith and trust in God later on in life. That seems to be the general principle. And of course, that's a warning, I think, to mom and dad. If children don't make that connection, that I mean, that could be because of stubbornness on their part, but it could also be because of negligence on our part. Bad parenting is going to make it harder for children to trust in the Lord later on. And there's probably something in there for pastors, too. We may need to be more patient with poorly parented people. They're going to have a harder time resting under the leadership and lordship of Jesus. They may need a longer on-ramp, so expectations and timelines may need to be adjusted. Verse 6 is interesting as well. It seems to be saying that while it is good and prudent to pursue wisdom and understanding, such things are ultimately the gift of God. He gives to those who pursue. That's fascinating. He, he doesn't give to the indifferent, and the industrious don't find it on their own. Rather, the text says he gives to those who diligently search. That seems to be the idea. And of course, that's very similar to what we see in the New Testament. In Philippians 2, 12 to 13, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there, Paul tells his people to work out their own salvation, but then he goes right on to say, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Tremper Longman III helps us understand what's being commended here. He says, we are to work hard at our salvation, but ultimately we must recognize that salvation is a gift of God's grace, and thank him for it, close quote. I think that's exactly right. Old Testament and new, we need to work, we need to strive, we need to pursue. But ultimately, it is God who gives, and it is ours to receive and give thanks. There is a warrant for effort here, but definitely not for pride. So we are to search and to strive and to seek after wisdom and godly counsel our whole lives long, And the consequence or outcome that is associated with that condition is the gift of wisdom and the assurance that we are walking on the prudent and protected path. Bruce Walke, again, is helpful here. He says, these paths are protected in such a way that those on them arrive at their appointed destiny of eternal life, closed quote. So to be clear, the Bible is not promising here that you will never get cancer or experience fraud or fall down the stairs if you walk this path. Rather, it is saying 
that if you walk on the path of obedience, faith, and wisdom, at the end of the day, you really have nothing to fear. There may be ups and downs. There may be twists and turns in your life. But the end of this path is life in the Lord, and God will make sure of that. Hey, Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here if I can, because that is really important for our listeners to understand. I think it's possible that someone might hear what's being said in this chapter, and they might think, if I do this, if I walk in the path of wisdom, then I won't get cancer, I won't suffer tragedy, I won't die at a young age or lose my job or whatever. But that is not what Proverbs is saying, is it? No, that's not how the book of Proverbs functions. It's important to remember that Proverbs aren't promises. They're Proverbs. They intend to communicate general principles, and they do. It is generally true that sober, hardworking, wise people do well in life, whereas foolish, drunken, lazy people do poorly. That is generally true. But the book of Proverbs itself acknowledges that that is not always true. Sometimes in a fallen world, what should happen doesn't happen. So Proverbs 13, 23, for example, says, The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away through injustice. So sometimes the sober, hardworking, wise person is still poor because he lives in a fallen, unjust, crooked world. And that stinks. But that's life, too. And wisdom is about understanding that and making good decisions in light of that. And Proverbs anticipates that someone might think, well, then, if that's the way the world is, I might as well be a crook. Because sometimes crime does pay. So Proverbs 16.8 says, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. So the point is, even in the book of Proverbs itself, we have general principles and a recognition that sometimes because of sin, those principles are going to be resisted. And our experiences may not align exactly with what we've been led to expect. But there is still a right and a wrong way to live. There's, there's a right way, and the right way is always the winning way in the end. Because reality is longer than the 70 or 80 years that we spend on this earth. And so wisdom comes down to fearing the Lord and playing the long game. All right. So in what sense are Proverbs true? You said they're not always promises, but they are always true, right? Yes, absolutely. Proverbs are true. I would argue that Proverbs are true in three different ways. They're true, first of all, in a general sense. As I mentioned, it is generally true that the sober, the wise, and the hardworking person is going to get ahead, whereas the drunk, foolish, lazy person is going to fall behind. That is generally true. Even though the world has fallen, it is still ordered. There are still moral principles, natural laws, and divinely imposed limitations that we must recognize and understand in order to live well and wisely as contingent creatures. This world was created by a good God, and therefore it has order, goodness, beauty, and wisdom hardwired in. And so Proverbs tells us what is even if what is is currently distorted, resisted, and occasionally obscured. That fundamental order is never obliterated, and the force and fact of that fundamental order is constantly reasserting itself. Wise people know that, and they live accordingly. So Proverbs are true in a general sense, and then they're also true in a situational sense. 
By that, I mean that an aspect of wisdom is knowing when to apply what general principle. For example, Proverbs 26, 4-5 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Close quote. So which is it? Should we answer a fool according to his folly or not? And the answer is, it depends on the situation. It depends on what kind of fool you're talking to. Sometimes engaging with a fool is worth the effort because the fool might be operating without all the facts. And then knowing the facts, he or she might actually become wise. But often, engaging with a fool is just a complete waste of time. The facts don't matter to some fools. They make decisions on predetermined tribal loyalties or distorted perceptions of reality or simple, plain old-fashioned self-interest. In such case, default to option A. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So it really does depend. Wisdom is like that. And proverbs are like that, even in English. We say in English that fate favors the bold. But we also say, look before you leap. Well, which is it? And the answer, of course, is it depends. Wisdom involves knowing when to apply which general principle. So proverbs are true in a general sense, and they're true in a situational sense. And then thirdly, proverbs are also true in an ultimate sense. Much of wisdom in the Bible comes down to this, seeing the whole board and playing the long game. There may be temporary distortions in the created order. There may be strange interventions and seasons of dark providence. But in the end, there will be justice. The wise will experience life, and the wicked will experience death. There is reality beyond the 70 or 80 years you spend on this planet, and wisdom involves thinking about that and accounting for that. In the end, we do reap what we sow. Not always in the present, not always perfectly in this life, but in the end, we do. In the end, there is justice. Therefore, it really does make sense to trust in the Lord with all your heart and to lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Yes, amen to that. Thanks for walking us through that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 9. A further cluster of positive consequences is discussed in verses 9 to 11. If you listen to your parents and make a lifelong habit of pursuing wisdom and godly instruction, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. So here the father is saying that if the son walks the path that he is setting him on and truly internalizes the wisdom and instruction that he's being given, eventually he'll be able to instinctively make good decisions on his own. He will know every good path. Every time he comes to a decision point in his life, he will know whether to turn right or left. He will have internal wisdom GPS. He won't get lost, for wisdom will live in his heart. Train your heart to love wisdom and godly instruction, and those things will take up residence inside you and lead you home. Making good choices will eventually become a matter of instinct as opposed to discipline and self-will. I love how Derek Kidner puts it. He says, wisdom and knowledge, when they become your own way of thinking and your acquired taste, will make the talk and interests of evil men alien to you, closed quote. I like that. 
Once you've internalized the voice of wisdom and godly counsel, when evil options are presented to you, they won't have to be forcibly resisted because they will appear distasteful to you. You will have learned to love better things. Now, of course, when we transpose all of that into a New Testament key, it takes on additional force and specificity. In the New Testament, Jesus promises his disciples the internal guidance of the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. So in a New Testament key, we might say, train yourself to love the Word of God and to trust the Son of God, and the Spirit of God will take up residence in your heart and will slowly but surely begin to change what you love and desire, and by means of these better instincts, lead you safely home. Praise the Lord. A further set of anticipated outcomes is outlined in verses 12 to 15. If you train your heart to obey your parents and trust in wise instruction, then you will find these things delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. In the New King James Version, you get a clearer sense of the underlying poetic structure. The NKJV has verse 12 as, to deliver you from the way of evil from the man who speaks perverse things. I mentioned earlier that to and so are often used to translate the Hebrew preposition le, which with an infinitive usually indicates the end or outcome of an action. So here. The underlying literary structure actually reinforces the message in the actual words of the text. A leads to B, X and Y lead to Z. The father is creatively saying that obeying parents and pursuing wisdom will have as its likely end or outcome deliverance from evil ways and evil people. When you take the wrong path, of course, you end up with the wrong people, you end up making bad choices, and you generally end up experiencing bad outcomes. That's the message, creatively crafted and forcefully delivered. A further cluster of outcomes is described in verses 16 to 19, again with the same underlying poetic structure to reinforce things. By obeying parents and pursuing godly wisdom, so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So again, the value of obeying mom and dad, the value of pursuing and then receiving godly wisdom, is that once that guidance system is internalized, you'll be able to steer clear of certain dangers, most notably here the danger of the forbidden woman whose house sinks down to death. Adultery in the Bible is held out as arguably the most dangerous of all second table sins. By second table, I mean those commandments having to do with how we relate to other human beings. First table commandments have to do with relating to God. Second table sins have to do, of course, with relating to others. And of those, few have more destructive potential than the sin of adultery. You may as well just swallow a hand grenade because adultery will blow up your life. That's what the Father is saying here. And let's just pause for a moment and remember who is speaking. This, this isn't just some guy, some dad. This is Solomon, who was born to David and Bathsheba. 
Solomon had a front row seat for the fallout and trauma that David brought into his own life by reason of his adultery. Solomon watched his father lose moral authority. He watched the civil war that nearly cost him his life and that nearly cost David his kingdom. Solomon saw his family fall into absolute chaos. He watched one of his brothers murder another of his brothers. Solomon knew, maybe better than anyone, what happens to a family when dad decides to color outside the lines, sexually speaking. Don't do it, son. Learn wisdom now. Internalize that voice and let it guide you past the road that leads to ruin. For none who go down that road come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Adultery, sleeping with another person's wife, is an act of personal and familial suicide. If internalizing the voice of wisdom helps you avoid that, then you will have been generously and amply rewarded. That's what's being said here. A final set of outcomes is predicted in verses 20 to 22. If you listen to your parents and you internalize the voice of godly wisdom, so you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This is the path that leads to everlasting happiness, the father says. It may be narrow, it may be uphill, but if you persevere on it, then you will experience enduring, even eternal, happiness. For the upright will inherit the land, and those with integrity remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off, and the treacherous rooted out from it. Well, of course, that's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel about the end of the age. In Matthew 13, verses 40 to 43, Jesus says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus and the wise father are on the same page here. They are both encouraging people to play the long game. The wicked path may look like a shortcut, but it is a road that leads to nowhere. Eventually, that path ends in the pit. But the wise road, the road of faith, obedience, and godly wisdom leads ever onwards, ever upwards into glory. Stay on that path. Choose it young. Walk it always. And do not turn to the left or to the right. This is the path of wisdom, son. This is the path of happiness. This is the path of life. Thanks be to God. And well, that is all the time that we have for today. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 